This is No Training Wheels, a show about the people, teams, and races that make the North American road cycling community so captivating and exciting. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Today's story is in formation and features Eric Hill and Zach Gregg of Project Echelon, a team which brings together elite athletes and veterans to educate, equip, and empower through physical activity. But before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling content. Please take a look at the Wide Angle Podium's website to find out about the other incredible shows on the network, or head on over to the Wide Angle Podium channel on YouTube to see some of the incredible videos and innovative stuff that we've been turning out these days. And while you're on the website, please click on the donate button and help support content creators like myself that you turn to for news and information. And since we're talking about clicking, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts from. And if you really like what you hear, please leave us a review. It'll help others find this show, and we'd really appreciate it. Every day, 22 American veterans commit suicide. It's a sad reality that has now plagued our nation for far too long. In the absence of comprehensive public assistance programs, private citizens and organizations have stepped up to provide the much-needed services. Enter Eric Hill of Project Echelon. After a veteran friend of his made his third attempt at suicide, he created a program to help veterans confront the emotional and psychological struggles that they face through physical activity. At the same time, he created an elite bike racing team to help spread the foundation's message to the world outside of Wisconsin and the Midwest. We tell today's story in two chapters, and with two guests. In chapter two, you'll meet Zach Gregg, one of my favorite former teammates and probably the best American bike racer that you haven't heard of yet. But first, Eric Hill and chapter one, Assemble the Troops. So my name is Eric Hill. I am the director and president of uh, the Project Echelon Veterans Nonprofit Organization, as well as the team principal for the Project Echelon Racing Team. I'm from Wisconsin, uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. So we love our cheese. We love our Packers. We love our beer. And without those things, what is life? So as you alluded to right there, Project Echelon is two things in one. One, it is a top-level professional cycling team here in the United States. And two, it's the name of a foundation that you've helped set up, which is designed to educate, equip, and empower veterans and their communities through physical activity and self-discovery. Which one would you like to talk about first? I like to call it the genesis story, right? Just like, where did we, where did we come from? Project Echelon started from me having a passion for, for cycling and wanting to compete at the highest level, but recognizing that all of those opportunities came from a place of privilege and came from a place of, of opportunity that was afforded to me by other people. I wanted to keep on um, going forward in our sport and, and be able to be, race the biggest races with the best team. I was racing at the time on a, a top-level regional team, but I wanted more. And uh, I decided that it was in my best interest to actually create that opportunity for myself. At the same time, 
I was connected with a, a veteran family friend who had made a third attempt at suicide, was struggling with drug and alcohol addiction, and knew that he needed to change his life or he was going to take his life. He knew that in order for him to change his life, he needed routine, he needed purpose, he needed goals. And uh, as an elite athlete, that's what that's what athletics, that's what competition, that's what sport provides to me every day. And that's what I love about it. He set a goal for himself to complete his first triathlon. In our conversation, he said, you know, I asked him some basic questions. You know, when's the last time you ran? Eh, I, I have no idea. Uh, do you swim? Nope. Haven't swam in years. Uh, you have a bike? No, <laughs> I don't. All right. Well, you're, you're off to a good start, right? It, it just became clear that I had privileges and opportunities that he didn't have, but he needed the things that I was afforded in order to make change in his life. And so together we decided to start the foundation where I would work with our industry partners for our team, Project Echelon, to make those resources available to veterans like Eric. Um, so his name is Eric Beach to help veterans like Eric Beach uh, to be able to achieve their, their goals and their dreams and to change and empower themselves uh, in a positive way. And then we would also work with our partners to give them value add to, to their community outreach um, and to the products and services that they provide outside of a realm that they normally would. I, we're a very unique team in this way. I don't know of any other team in any other sport that is both a nonprofit um, organization and a professional elite racing team or basketball team or football team or anything for that matter. So it's a really unique model that we have. We believe it's highly sustainable because of that, and our community is directly embedded in it. So the level of authentic and organic support that we have is, is quite amazing. Where does the name Project Echelon come from? Um, so an echelon is both something that is a part of a military uniform um, that they would wear on their, their sleeve, and those echelons are earned um, over time through through either different missions or um, different obligations and uh, and responsibilities that they have, but also in the sport of cycling, an echelon is is something that we use to work as a team, to work as a unit, to go faster, to go harder, while sharing the responsibility, while sharing the work. And so, we saw a direct correlation and connection. You know, something that our veteran community could align with. They knew what an echelon was and what that meant to them. And then for us, it was um, it, the meaning was. We're sharing the work. We're, we're, we're going to the front to take the lead, to break the wind so that somebody else can pull through and do it for us as well. And if we all share this responsibility, we'll be able to go faster and further together. So the team started in 2017, 2018? 2016, 2017. What was it like in 2016, 2017? What was the team, what, what, what was the cadre of riders that you had who are part of this organization? And we were, we were shoestring, we were pulling it together, you know, off of, off of kind of crumbs that were left behind from previous relationships that everybody on the team that I brought in had, we had a 1994 vehicle donated to us. We had a, a old trailer, uh, donated our way. I mean, we ran the, the entire organization on $16,000 and that was veteran support and racing team support people could have easily, I mean, the, the level of rider that I was bringing in, they could have easily went to another team and said, you know, they're going to offer me more. I'm going there instead. But I shared my vision with them. I shared my plan for, for growth with them and they believed in it. And there's something special when you believe in what you're doing and why you're doing it, right? Like no longer are you just a bike racer. You're a bike racer with a purpose that 
really leverages and empowers and enhances the community that you live in. And when when that's your perspective, everything you do has greater purpose and you you do it with a lot more conviction as well. Because of that, we've seen amazing growth um, in talent in our in our team over the last five years. How many of those guys from 2017 are still with you today? So we have a unique model where anybody that's written through the um, with our program, when they decide to move on, whether that's a life transition, whether that's their their skill set isn't necessarily meeting the the dynamic or the needs of our team, we have an ambassador program as well. And we offer the opportunity for them to be engaged in our community and continue to be a part of that and then to race in our ambassador kit. I believe, it, I'm not misspeaking, we've only had three riders um, over the course of those years um, leave our program. Otherwise, they are most typically wanting to, to remain involved in our cause and in our purpose, whether it be on the elite team or whether it be transitioning to the, to the ambassador team. Um, which I, I think just says a lot about their belief in the work that we do. How has the team evolved from 2017 to this year, start 2020? Obviously, what is happening now in the summer of 2020 is not what any of us planned, but had it gone the way that you guys had planned, how is that roster going to look? Last year, I almost got 200 inquiries from riders across the country and internationally, people from South America, Australia, Romania, to, to come and ride for our program, something that I never would have anticipated would be the case um, at the onset. Honestly, when we started, I just wanted to be uh, the top regional team in the Midwest that got invites to Redlands, Gila, Joe Martin, Cascade, those types of, of events. But little by little... Um, we saw more potential in ourselves and um, my riders kept on advocating for themselves and saying, hey, we're better than this. Like we need to get into this event. We, we've met X, Y and Z objective. We should go after this sponsor. Those conversations, we just kept pushing each other in that way. That has just led to this cascading effect where um, our partnerships have grown exponentially. Our support and our ability to to broaden the scope of races that we do has grown as well. This year, we would have done the full PRT calendar, a good number of the USA Crit Series. Uh, we had a three-week um, trip planned to go to Europe and race in um, two UCI races in, in France. And then next year, we've already been re-invited to those races. They were canceled this year. And we've also been invited to a UCI uh, stage race in Spain. So um, we know that we're going to have an international calendar, including Canada, the United States, and and Europe. And with that, just brings more leverage to bring on higher quality riders. One of the things that I, I always let people know too about our about our roster is your resume needs to be more than your race results. Your resume needs to be who you are as a person as well, um, because we really value that. Our all of our riders are responsible for directly working with, mentoring, coaching, being a part of our veteran community. And I need to know that they have the maturity and the professionalism to be able to do that in the highest degree. And because of that, we have a very strong, close-knit community. And that's why I think we've been able to grow at the rate that we have successfully. What is the three, five, whatever marker that you want to say, year plan for this team? My goal would be to continuously be a top three team in the United States. Uh, right now, this year, our goal coming in would have been to be a top five PRT team 
which we've, we've done the last two years. So to continue to maintain that status and then get to a point where we're contending for the top spot throughout the PRT calendar, but then to have open invites to um, races like Maryland Cycling Classic, to races like Tour Utah. And so whether that means you know we get to a point where, where we have a continental license and we're able to support a team on that level. That's dependent on, you know, the structure of the UCI and USA Cycling and and how all of those things work. But that but that's our goal is to be to be able to use our sport as a major mouthpiece to share our mission. And we know that those races and those events give us that greatest opportunity. And so we want to be as visible as possible, competing in the biggest events possible um, and finding success in those in those events. And uh, we're going to be we're going to be agile and we're going to be responsive um, based on how our sport grows over time, which is why we're also you know dabbling and working in the virtual space now too, because we know that that is an up and coming venue for our sport, and we need to be present there. There's a huge there's a huge contingency of cyclists that engage in our sport in that way, and we're going to be responsive to that. Your team is a men's team. It is. Yep. Is there any interest on your part in expanding into women's racing as well? Right now, we we support both men's and women's um, athletes for for our veterans. And as far as the elite side of the sport goes, we do have a vision for that. It's just a matter of doing it equi- equitably, right? You have. I'm not going to do it just to say that I've done it. If I'm going to do it, I want to make sure that they have an equitable experience at a high level, and that's going to require me to be able to get higher level of sponsorship in, in order to do that. And so the interest is certainly there. I think that our first entry point would be to do it in the virtual space and then to possibly pick some key events throughout the year where we, where we sponsor a composite project echelon women's team and, and pull them together and give them that opportunity to be present with us and have some of our benefits and resources accessible to them, um, to do, to do those events over the course of five years. I haven't written it down as a goal yet. But I think that that's kind of the trajectory that we'd be on in order to to be able to support that. So let's change gears here a little bit and talk about the foundation aspect. I know that you've you've made a couple of mentions during the course of the early parts of this interview about the foundation. But one thing I think I came to this interview with the impression that you had a a military background yourself, but in fact, you are not a veteran. I'm not. No. Yeah. But I, I kind of grew up on a, on a military academy. My dad was a buildings and grounds director, um, at Northwest military academy. So kind of grew up around that, that culture and just grew respect for those men and women. My sister is a West Point graduate. She's currently deployed in the middle East. My brother-in-law, uh, her husband is a air force academy graduate. He is uh, currently active duty, but living in Colorado. Between those two relationships, my experience growing up, um, and then this really compelling story that I, you know, that Eric Beach had shared with me, all of that just came together to kind of fuel this passion that I have for for this project that we call Project Echelon. Like I said, it just continues to evolve and um, and grow itself through the organic relationships that we've formed throughout this experience. What was the white space that you intended this foundation to fill? Because obviously there are a slew of veterans services, foundations, and outreach groups. How did you want to do it better or differently than those? One, we're not a paid membership-based organization. We wanted to make it accessible. 
Um, and our way of making it accessible was to work directly with ind industry partners that they had ben the benefits that, that um, elite athletes are afforded. Um, we wanted them to have more or less the pro experience, right? We wanted them to love the sport for the same reasons that we love it um, so that they can get the maximum benefits from it. And so it, our community is about bringing civilian athletes together with veteran athletes who have aspiring goals and bring them together to learn from one another. Um, a lot of these other organizations are, you know, veteran specific, which isn't a bad thing. The veteran community definitely, um, is a strong brotherhood and sisterhood. And, um, they definitely support one another in ways that I can't support them because I just, I've never been in their shoes. I don't know the things they've experienced, the things that they've seen, the things that they've had to do. But we have both of that. We have the veteran community that they connect, they talk. Also, we bring the civil civilian community in together as well. It's really cool to see our veteran community grow from the background and knowledge and experiences that our elite athletes have, but vice versa. You know, these 21, 23, 25-year-old young men that are in school or just graduating from school who have aspirations to go, you know, to the next level, to, to race world tour, what have you, but they're still developing themselves as, as leaders in their community. They're giving themselves opportunity to develop themselves as, as people. I think that's something that's, that's really special and unique as well. You know, we see a lot, especially in this part, we see a lot of sacrifices made by the, by athletes, maybe put school off for a couple of years. They put their career off for a couple of years. For some, it works out wonderfully. And for others, when their career ends, they get left hanging. Like, what do I do next? From our perspective, uh, there there is a next. They know where to go next because they've had the opportunity to, to develop themselves and do some really deep reflection and engage in some really wonderful conversations with, with people who have had some extremely dynamic um, experiences. I actually didn't even think about this until a second ago. And I perfectly understand the benefit that the team gets from being around veterans. Veterans, by and large, have a dramatically larger amount of leadership training than does your average 21, 22-year-old. So the guys on your team can learn from real-world leaders who actually did the leading in a very, shall we say, fluid and sometimes dangerous environment. But what's the connection between cycling and you know, physical activity and benefiting these veterans groups. In our formation, we were able to engage in some research with universities and really look at the benefit of, um, of sleep on post-traumatic stress um, incidents and then, you know, on a recurrence of, of uh, alcohol abuse or other substance abuse. The benefits of routine physical activity on both sleep and then also on self-image and self-efficacy were... I mean, ex extremely high. And so um, we knew that we, again, needed to make that available to people. The The problem was they didn't know how. Like, okay, I've got a bike. Now what do I do? Like, do I go ride 16 miles a day and how hard am I supposed to go? Well, it depends on what your on what your goal is. Is it for fitness? Is it for racing? Is it for whatever? And so that's that's what our team brings to them is really helping them understand like who they want to be as athletes and then what does it take to get there? Are you, are you wanting to just be able to do your Saturday group ride, you know, with a, a bunch of local, you know, moms and dads, or do you, you know, do you aspire to be a cat one racer? 
um, we, we've got the whole gamut. I mean, we have a, a 67 year old guy that was in the Navy, funny enough, who um, had a back injury and we encouraged them to, to swim and he's never swam before. He didn't know how to swim. And so we supported him with swimming lessons. But that, that's what we do is, is we help them to make their goals a reality by providing them the background knowledge that they would need to, to access it. So how involved are the guys on the team with the foundation? It wouldn't run without them. The, the two are inseparable. The guys on the team, they do uh, weekly check-in calls to, to look at the SMART goals, um, see how prog- what progress is being made, to see the growth that's, that's happening over time. Um, they're the ones that write all of the training programs. You know, we have several guys who, you know, have went to school. Zach Gregg is one of those guys, um, who we'll talk about later, but you know, he, he's got his master's degree in sports physiology. He helps to put these programs together. Um, he understands some of the nuances of our veterans with disabilities as well and how to best support them. Zach Nair, who also writes, you know, the, the power analysis articles for Velo News. If you read those, like he's on our, in our program, um, and he uh, helps to write write those programs as well. And so everybody's got their hands in something. And the organization 100% could not function without, without uh, their support and, and advocacy. Let's talk about Zach Gregg, the 27-year-old from Roanoke, Virginia, but now living in North Carolina. Before the season was brought to, shall we say, a disc break style halt, uh, by the coronavirus, he was making headlines of his own. I mean, with some incredible performances, winning the GC at the Tour of the Southern Highlands and also being on the podium in, in two of the individual stages, finishing fourth in the virtual Tour of the Gila. Talk about Zach and his role in this organization, in this team. You know, Zach is new to the team this year, but immediately asserted himself as a leader. But Zach's one of those guys that he's a quiet leader. He doesn't need to use his voice. He just uses his actions. If he does talk, he follows his, he follows his words with actions that are even stronger and louder. If he says he's going to do something, he's going he's gonna to do it. And like you said, you know, that goes for on the bike. You know, if, hey, I, I'm, I'm the road captain for this race. I've been designated that, and I'm going to follow through and make sure that your efforts pay off. And he did just that at Tour Southern Highlands, right? That was the best way we could have possibly started off the season, being on the podium, like you said, for two of those stages and, and winning the overall. Like that brought our team extremely close together. Unfortunately, three weeks later, the country shut down. But even in, in the virtual races, that was something where I said, guys, this is a space we have to be present in. We need to find a new way to get our team out there, to get our, our mission out there. We're going to do these virtual races and you know, he went ahead and dedicated himself to learning that platform and learning how to race on it at a, at a high level. And uh, he found some really great success. Within the organization, Zach Gregg does all of our onboarding. So when a new veteran comes in, um, they send an inquiry. Zach is the first person that contacts them. He asks some initial questions, um, and then he sets up a, a call between myself, um, Zach, and the, the veteran themselves. And we talk through uh, the organization, our mission and vision, uh, the benefits we provide to, to veterans. And he works with them on, on getting their SMART goals um, put together before we assign them a coach and a mentor for somebody else on the team. So again, a first-year guy that stepped up as a major leader right away and said, whatever you need me to do, I'm going to do it. He's, he's had a wonderfully positive impact in our team so far. Why don't we finish up here talking about virtual racing? Obviously, this is something that's new to our world this year. 
we have seen virtual racing in the past on smaller scales, but now it's the only game in town. And you guys have been at the forefront of the virtual racing world since the quarantine started. So talk to us about your involvement in virtual racing. It started out with us realizing like our season has more or less come to a stop. Like you, you, you said a disc, a disc break stop. And that means that our athletes don't have an avenue to pursue their passions. And our organization doesn't have its typical means to reach people. That wasn't going to be okay by us. Like we can't have a halt on both of those things. We need to find a way to adapt. You know, we started brainstorming ideas as a, as a team, like, what can we do? How, how can we go about this? And so some guys aligned themselves and said, I'm going to do an Everesting attempt. And some guys went ahead and said, I'm going to do some epic gravel rides and do some video around that. Some of the guys said, well, what, what do you think about, you know, doing some virtual meetups? It's like, okay, yeah, we can try that. And so at the time we were using Zwift meetups and uh, we invited a bunch of, uh, of friends together um, from different teams around, around the country. At the time it was limited to 50 riders. We set a course, we set three, three stages up and, uh, and we raced. It was pretty archaic. I screen captured the events on, on my, um, on my screen from my perspective. And I would switch between riders, um, in the event so that we could see them as well. Um, and then at the completion of the meetup, it pops up with your completion time. Riders had to scramble to get a screenshot of their completion time, and then they would send it to me through a Google form, and I would facilitate results that way. And it turned out to actually be pretty cool and pretty competitive. Um, so by the time we got to the second event, I got a little bit better at the screen capture piece. We got better at collecting results and, and putting out GC events, and we had a full field of 50 riders. And I sent the information to Brad Soner and uh, asked him. He does the announcing at Tour of America's Dairyland. Um, and at Intelligentsia Cup, two races that are near and dear to us. And so we have a good relationship with him. And I asked, you know, hey, on top of your tour to quarantine, do you mind doing, um, you know, a little race analysis of, of this event? And he obliged and uh, we put it out and it caught a ton of attention. And so then the question became, well, when are you going to put on an actual event? The need was there. The desire was there. And I reached out to team directors and they said, yeah, we'd absolutely participate. But then I started thinking about, okay, what other stakeholders are being left out of this conversation? And it was the race promoters. If we don't have our race promoters, we don't have a sport. And so from that point, I decided I'm going to reach out to Redlands. I'm going to reach out to Gila. I'm going to reach out to Joe Martin and see if we can put on an actual race event in their name, promote these, you know, these races and their sponsors to ensure their sustainability over time. And so I got all of the riders lined up. I got all of the races and the race promoters lined up. And then at that point, I went to um, Zwift Community Live and Nathan Guerra and Zwift and said, hey, we want to put on some events, actual events. Here's what we've got lined up. What do you think? They took it. They, they said, you know, this is, this is high level. This is a community that we're not reaching at this time. We want to put it on. It was a wonderful collaboration for those, for those three races. The competition was extremely high by the virtual tour Gila, our second event. We had a women's race as well. You know, Sarah Gigante won that and Lauren Stevens took second, who ends up, you know, winning the virtual tour de France and winning a stage at that as well. It was just amazing to see um, the competitiveness, to see the banter. You know, we even got went as far as putting on virtual managers meetings the week of the race. But to get the managers in the same virtual Zoom room 
and having them ask questions about the race Bible and the courses and the KOM. And, and it was really wonderful to have the community come together in a time of dire need and compete at the highest level, whether it was virtual or in person, it happened. And uh, I think it really did wonders for North American cycling at that time. Do you want to do more of these? The plan is yes. We are working hard. Um, so Frank Cundiff, I, I need to mention him. He is uh, now racing under the Project Echelon Colors. He's a Navy veteran himself. He and I are, are working together to, to put on a, a virtual race league um, this winter. Um, so we're working with, in partnership again with uh, in real life race directors to put on races in, in their name and to give them visibility throughout the calendar year, not just the week before and after the race to have a static league of, of teams that come together and race so that we can follow point series and truly have some, you know, inner league competition. We have a, we have a question here from our friends at Zwift for their power-ups. And if you're familiar with Zwift and Zwift racing, power-ups are different items that you collect along the way and they give you a bonus of speed or featherweight or whatever it happens to be. And we know that Wisconsinites love their cheese. So if there is a Zwift cheese power-up, what type of cheese would it be and what's the power-up that you would get from it? You know, I, I think there's there's two that I really like. I like um, Muster Up from, from Munster cheese. And uh, what it would do is, um, you know, Munster cheese stinks. It's not really a pleasant thing. It would slow the rest of the group down and you would be able to get an instantaneous gap on the entire group, not just the individual people that were immediately drafting on you. It would give you an advantage over everybody in the group. That would be that'd be Munster cheese. You want to keep your distance from from that. Or sharp cheddar um, would be specific to sprints, and it would give you a very sharp short burst of three second power. And I again, that would be something that if you got it and it's that's a unique one. Um, it takes you a while to get the 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 sharp cheddar. You don't use it until you know the finale is coming. So um, you you keep that one in your back pocket for the entire race if you have to. Well, Eric, thanks so much for being on the show. We look forward to seeing you guys out on the real road in 2021, but also in the virtual space coming soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure. And I, I really look forward to uh, listening to your future podcast as well. Today's show is brought to you by Watt Bike, the creators of the Atom, an indoor training bike that has revolutionized how top athletes in the world train to be their best. The Atom is the result of 20 years of development focused on getting the best out of the rider while giving the rider the most realistic feeling possible through innovative technology. And it's worked. Officially endorsed by British Cycling and chosen by the UCI for the use in its centers, it has been used by riders at both the Olympics and the World Championships. And now you can bring this tool home to your bike. Just think, no more lugging your dirty outdoor bike inside, removing wheels, or spending unnecessary time adjusting shifting. Now you can have a dedicated indoor setup capable of connecting to the leading racing and training apps, including Zwift. So head on over to wattbike.com US. That's W-A-T-T-B-I-K-E, all one word, dot com slash U-S. Or click on the link in the show notes to find out more. 
Chapter 2, Peak Bike Nerdery. Moving from the literal back of the pack to the top of America's bike racing scene in only a couple of years requires a laser focus and commitment. There are a ton of ways to get lost in the process, but if you can dial in and push all the limits, you can succeed. For Zach Gregg, the transition from the new guy on the Project Echelon team to the guy is the result of an extreme dedication to learning about the sport, zeroing in on training, and sometimes, as you'll soon hear, spending hours in a parking lot learning how to drive your bike through corners. Having the opportunity to positively impact others around you, well, that's real success. In his role as the project's onboarder, Zach interacts directly with each veteran that comes to the program seeking assistance. Stick around for the end of this chapter when Zach drops a pearl of wisdom that we all need to hear. My name is Zach Gregg. I race for Project Echelon Racing Team, and I am from Roanoke, Virginia. And nowadays, you are from actually a little further south on I-81, right? I am, um, and a little bit off 81. (laughs) I'm also the assistant coach for cycling at Lees McRae College, which is in Banner Elk, North Carolina. And for those who don't know the collegiate cycling scene as well, Lees McRae is legit. It's like the Duke, UNC, Kansas of college cycling. <laughs> I'd, I'd say they have one of the most storied and uh, accomplished histories in collegiate cycling. Yes. There have been some some very, very high achievers that have come through the program, both before and under Coach Hall. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to be in this role where we have 45 students coming in um, in the fall, uh, 20 of them being freshmen. So with all that's going on in the world, uh, just to be surrounded by that enthusiasm and that eagerness to get back to work and to get back to cycling has been has been really good for me personally. Um, so I'm very excited. So what is it like to be a part of a program like this? Because cycling is not an NCAA sport. It is a club activity run under the the auspices kind of of USA Cycling and the National Collegiate Cycling Conference. What is it like to be in a program like this that kind of charts its own course? It almost depends on on who the leader, who the captain of that ship is as to what your experience both on the staff and as a student athlete would be. Um, and we're super fortunate to have Coach Tim Hall steering that ship. Um, with the freedom that USA Cycling affords him, he's able to recruit from all different backgrounds and all areas of both the United States and the world to find cyclists that fit into his vision of what a student athlete should be and someone who's really going to appreciate the opportunity at Lee's McRae. You are probably, and this is me labeling, so you can agree or disagree with this as you want, but you're probably one of the best not widely known bike racers in the United States. You've done your job of progressing up the chain methodically, quietly, and diligently 
to the point where you are now or were at the beginning of this year poised to be one of the guys that everybody talked about when it came down to GC, when it came to time trialing, when it came to hard races. How have you made that journey from the Cat 3, the Cat 2 that, you know, a lot of us knew you as back in like 2016 to being somebody who won the Tour of the Southern Highlands this year, has a national championship in time trialing? How have you made that progress? Comes a lot with just how I grew up and my appreciation for both the process and the degree to which hard work will carry you forward. You know, I I was fortunate enough to to work with a really good coach when I first started cycling, um, and a few since then. But he he definitely helped me define the parameters through which I wanted to succeed in cycling. The things that were motivating to me, some of those being power numbers and you know whatever it may have been. But really, the the plan that we set forth in 2016 and 2017 is what I've kind of clung to through new coaches, through adversity, collarbone, ankle injury, whatever it's been. It's it's really given me something to fall back on and to constantly remind myself that through a process and through the hard work and focus, that you're going to continue to make breakthroughs, however quickly or or slowly that may happen. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate your sentiment that I'm that I'm a good bike racer, but you know, there's still plenty of work to be done. What was one of the moments that you feel in your early parts of your career where you knew you had broken through something, where you were riding along, you were racing, you were doing something, and you're just like, wow, that switch has now flipped on me. The the tour of Washington County in 2017 with Haymarket. With you guys. Okay, so just back up for us a second. The Tour of Washington County, a two-day, three-stage stage race that happens in Hagerstown, Maryland, features a really hilly, punchy road race, a super early morning time trial, and a afternoon, somewhat technical, definitely power climb criterium. And what you walk away with a, a second place finish, maybe a first place finish, depending on how we count time and points. But, you know, walk us through that event. Yeah, like you said, it was a it was a super difficult, super hot road race. And I think it was, uh, you know, like Noah Granigan, Scott McGill, some people who are, you know, highly respected and, and notably awesome bike riders um, that placed well in the the road race. And I trained really hard for the time trial was probably one of my goal events of the year that year and ended up being able to beat all of them in the time trial. And I think we came into the crit either equal on time or maybe plus minus one second between me and Noah. And just going into that and being able to have a conversation with teammates with 10 plus years of racing experience saying, we're going to work for you, Zach. Um, we think you have this, in the, we, you can do this. Right. And, you know, you almost have an out of body experience of like, oh my God, like I've never, I've never dreamt of, of someone with this person's racing pedigree having my back like that. You know, un- unfortunately I was not either skilled enough or brave enough to, to take back time on Noah there <laughs> and, um, and ended up second overall with a teammate, I think in third Taylor Pierman. But yeah, the, I mean, the whole drive home was smiles and calling friends and just thinking, oh my God, like 
is this is this bike racing right like even on that very uh micro scale it was it was a huge step forward and gave me a lot of confidence going to the next year one of the things about that race and about the way that you do race is the final two two and a half corners of the race and the criterium it's it's almost a square but it's not because it has this little offshoot that go takes you just a little bit to the left before banging you really hard back to the right and it's a much more than 108 uh much more than a 90 degree corner into a small downhill and a very steep you know punchy up section where the finish line is and each time you go through that corner depending on where you are in the field you can be putting out 900 800 watts sustained power for 10 15 seconds and you do that enough and you start to regret a lot of decisions that you had made in the days before that's never really been your race style your race style had always been diesel solid power numbers i'm going to stay steady i'm going to keep this truck going how did you figure out that day in order to make that jump and put yourself into a good spot I think I literally had teammates coaching me through every corner for an hour. I was not yet at the point where I had any control over my own bike. It was still a very much a brute force affair. Um, I'm sure if we went back and look at, at the at the Strava, I probably put out way more watts than everybody else, like anybody else in that race. And it and it really wasn't until joining Kelly and then Tour of America's Dairyland. I think the next year. And even past that, you know, I have uh, a family member, my brother-in-law, who's a really accomplished cyclocross racer, mountain biker. And even riding with him, he was like, dude, we got to figure out how to make you a better bike handler. And so at the end of the 2018 season, we spent a lot of time in parking lots and going over the very basic stuff that either because of fitness or because I was doing a lot of the coaching and stuff online, I had never been exposed to, you know, people in races were like, hey, man your bike handling skills are not great, but you know, but being the, you know, the, the power numbers geek, it was like, okay, no problem. But like, look at these Watts. Right. And then as you move up and, and the skill level around you increases exponentially, like eventually you get to a point where it doesn't matter about the Watts. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate that, that he took some time away and just taught me how to corner, you know, already as a, probably a cat too, at that point, going to America's tour of America's Dairyland and being prepared to kind of throw myself on the fire. Had we not spent, I don't know, five, six hours in a parking lot that week before heading up to Wisconsin, it would have been a totally different affair. And that was probably the the second big breakthrough for me was on day one of America's Dairylands, I probably finished dead last. And it's not the most technical day. And so over the course of those 10 days, you know, having conversations with teammates, going out early in the mornings and practice things and like scoping through all the different crit courses and all the turns and everything. Um, that was, that was a real breakthrough. Driving back was, was totally different than driving up there. So, so the first day of toad of 2018 with Kelly benefits, you were 86th out of 103. (laughs) And that was probably, uh, as far back as I could get as far away from the bunch sprint as I could possibly get. Um, <laughs> cause that's, that's pretty much where I wanted to be. Yeah. So it's a, it's amazing because you do that in a pro one, two event at toad 
And then you go down to just a few a few days later, July 26, and you snap off a top 10 at Amateur Road Nationals. So you've always had this gift of power. It was just a matter of figuring out how to drive the bike with the power. Right. Yeah, I, I, I fancy myself as a fast learner. I've just not always asked the right questions. So talk about being fast in a non-technical sense. So the time trial, the least attractive from a spectator perspective, part of our sport, but probably the most sexy when it comes down to nerdery. Oh, yes. They're- time trialists, <laughs> we have this thing where we like to dork out on the tiny details. So talk to us about your love of time trials. Let's see. So I think it actually started right around that Washington County time. I realized that this was a discipline that did not take a whole lot of bike handling skill. And there were a lot of questions that I could find answers to online that would help me become a better time trialist. So I really got into the weeds as far as power and CDA and using software to help pace my time trials, Um, looking up pictures of who is fast and how to recreate that position and then test it for myself in training. And then all the equipment. I mean, it's it's really a choose your own adventure kind of uh, kind of discipline. At the end of the day, you really kind of have to have something a little screw loose and just the ability to to suffer um, for long, long periods of time. What I've likened it to when people have asked me about it, because they're like, why do you want to do 40 kilometers as hard as you can in the most uncomfortable positions you can possibly find in the hottest weather that you can possibly maintain? You know, what is it about this and what makes you good or bad at it? And I keep coming back to this idea of time trialing is amazingly simple. When you break it down to the basics, how long can you be uncomfortable for and how much harder can you push than just uncomfortable? How hard have you found yourself pushing yourself when you go out there and time trial? For example, the day that you won nationals. How hard was that day? It uh, it was one of the hardest. <laughs> so to to preface that, actually, I had to do the team time trial about ninety minutes before, which and the team time trial is I think it was a true forty k where the individual was a little bit shorter. And where was the TT at? It was at Fort Gordon in Georgia. So wide open under the hot blazing sun on some really gnarly suck the life out of your legs type pavement. Definitely. Talking about exploring all the options. I had convinced a bunch of my teammates to help do some heat training, even though we were in Texas to get acclimated to the humidity. So we were doing trainer rides in our like shower room and all this crazy stuff in the week before. I had everybody's bike split printed out for them. We talked pacing on and on. How did you get a bunch of guys to 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 hit trainers in a shower? What was the logic there? What was the convincing that had to be done there? Because like when I ride the trainer, I've got like 15 fans on me blowing full force. My understanding is that the humidity is so great in certain areas that the water is just going to stay on you and you're going to continue sweating. So in order to combat that process where we were in Texas, there's not that same humidity. We had the heat, 
It wasn't crazy. It was forecasted to be 95 with 80% humidity in Georgia the whole weekend. So I explained to them the concept of increased blood plasma volume and la la la. And um, so they're like, okay, we'll do it. We'll try it for a couple of times. Um, and really you, you don't have to be doing intervals in there. Um, you just have to kind of have your heart rate elevated, pedals turn it over, 30 minutes, an hour, listen to music, talk about how bad it sucks, and then you get out of there. Yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of pushed them as far as they were they were going to tolerate me pushing them um, before that event. <laughs> You've made this transition now where you are on Project Echelon. And, you know, we had just heard from Eric and Eric was telling us about the kind of the origins of the team and the foundation and the mission of the the foundation itself and how each athlete plays a role in being a part of that mission. How have you found your role that you play with the Project Echelon Foundation as it compares to your role teaching and educating young collegiate athletes? So to clarify, my role with Project Echelon um, extends a little bit in a different direction than a lot of the other guys. I am the coordinator for veteran onboarding with Project Echelon. So if there are inquiries through the website, they come to me. Um, and then we set them up with some some different worksheets and, and things like that to determine their goals and to see what services that we can provide for them to help them uh, best utilize endurance training to um, fulfill their goals. Is this something that you believe in? Do you think that putting veterans who have experienced trauma, who have experienced injury in an environment where they can do athletic endeavors, do you think that this is a beneficial project? Oh, I absolutely do. Why? Why is it something you're so passionate about? If you were to ask me that question before I stepped into this role, I would have said that it is because a plan and a purpose gives these guys something to help better themselves with. You know, having having things on a calendar for them is very motivating. They know that this part of their day, they have to complete this thing. And once it's a, a completed, they have this sense of accomplishment. And so to carry that from day to day keeps them grounded. But once I stepped into this role as as a veteran onboarder and work with these guys um, with them as you know, coached athletes now. Um, it's so much more than that. I mean, they are the most driven, methodical, passionate people and athletes that I get to work with. There really is no comparison with their level of, of focus and just commitment to these programs and really like being able to work with them on a day-to-day -day basis teaches me more about myself and what things that I can give to them then I think I teach them about training or how to recover or whatever silly thing that, you know, impacts their bike training. So I, abs I absolutely believe in it. And, you know, if there was a way for us to support more people and get involved in, in other avenues, I would absolutely do it. Let's move away from your involvement with the foundation and talk about Project Echelon, the team that you're on. I find it fascinating to find out how people find teams in bike racing because it's this black box where like 
names get tossed in and connections are made and you knew somebody at some event who didn't have a spot but refers you to somebody else. How does Zach Gregg from Virginia end up on this team which has all these Midwestern Wisconsin riders? So um, after... uh... After the 2019 season, I sent them a message and said, hey, here's who I am. Um, here's my race resume. I'm really interested in you guys. I think I could benefit you. And I never heard back. <laughs> and um, then as the the months kind of rolled on, I kind of you know looked at other avenues, maybe staying with the same team, maybe doing something else. Um, I got a text message from Matt Zimmer. And he and I are connected through my sister and brother-in-law. He's a Lee's McRae alumni. And we talked very briefly, maybe a couple of times. Um, and we found out that we had the same coach. So Matt sent me a message. He said, there has been some changes within the organization with some people taking a more uh, regional approach to their racing calendar. Would you be interested in a spot? And I mean, I didn't even read the whole thing before. I was like, yes, how do I do it? Yes, please. Yes, yes, yes. You know, just knowing the pedigree of the guys on that team, it's exciting to be in a position to learn from them, if nothing else. And so, you know, within within a couple of days, I found out that it was going to be possible. They sent me the stuff and we just got rolling. And so it's there's there's no formula to it. <laughs> I mean, not only are you a part of the team, you are one of the leaders. You your first race out when when it was cool for us to race in real life your first race out at the tour of southern highlands this year you win that really has to make you feel good and make the guys around you feel good to know that you you came in and you put your money where your mouth was it was probably the the biggest sigh of relief that i've ever sighed (laughs) you know because like you've said earlier i'm i'm under the radar man like i don't I don't have this history in cycling that some other people have. I didn't. I didn't really grow up in the sport. I started at 23 in tw- in 2016. So to go to team camp with these guys in Georgia for a couple of days before the race and have them be very welcoming, but also a little bit suspicious of who I was and why I was there, and then be able to to pull off some, you know, very lucky. Uh, race results in a couple different situations and then really have just a fun day out with Michael Garrison um, just throwing down mad watts in the in the road race was the best weekend I could have ever asked for. It, it was just the biggest sigh of relief. But unfortunately, that was that was the moment where everything kind of stopped for the rest of the world. That was that was it. <laughs> You've made lemonade out of some pretty sour lemons when it comes down to e-racing. You know, one of the big things that Project Echelon has done uh, to its, its great credit has been to push forward on virtual racing. And you continued your dominance uh, on the uh, that you had on the real world into the virtual world with a really solid performance uh, e-bike racing, or e-racing, I guess is a better way to put it. What's that like? It's a whole different world. <laughs> I mean, don't have to worry about bike handling too much there. You don't, which plays to my strengths, by golly. Um, <laughs> it's uh, man, Zwift is hard. There's just no two ways about it. It is watt per kilo based. The strategy 
is very limited compared to outdoor racing. Your teammates matter, but not necessarily as much. It's just different. And it's just hard the whole time. We got into it a little bit late since there had been teams, you know, racing professionally on Zwift for several years. Um, So going into those first couple events, I tried to do my homework and watch some YouTube and figure out like what makes these guys good at Zwift. Obviously, it's a high threshold. It's knowing how to play the game and then a little bit of team tactics. And so being able to kind of work with a couple of the other TT guys on the team to figure out, hey, this is how CDA works in Zwift. This is how we can team time trial a little bit better than everybody else. This is where you should hit the front in a sprint. You know, trying to trying to dial all this stuff in was super fun um, when there's not a whole lot else going on. Where do you want to take this in the future? You know, hopefully we get back to in real life racing in 2021. And even if we don't, it kind of sounds like there's rumors in the world about a virtual bike racing league this fall, this winter. You know, where do you want to go with this sport? You're now 27. So it's time you're you're right at the threshold of the peak sort of thing. You know, what do you want to do? I'm going to let my results determine my place in cycling. Um, I would like to train hard and progress and use as much science within my own training to impact specific variables in my body and just see what happens. I've had the, uh, the opportunity to work with some pretty high level coaches. I have progressed every year to the degree that most people would be very happy about. Um, and I'm going to do that until, um, I can no longer. And at this point, now that I've, I've used cycling to, to gain an education, pay for my college essentially, and has now afforded me an opportunity to coach other athletes. If this is my peak, that's fine. But to, to leave the sport angry that I didn't get a professional contract at the world tour or anything, I don't think any of that is ever going to bother me. I don't lose sleep over, over being a, a successful regional racer or having a couple national level results. So it's, it's all fun at this point. Thank you so much, Zach, for joining us. And good luck in 2021. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on another episode of No Training Wheels, a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. Please visit us on Facebook or Instagram at No Training Wheels Pod. And your home for the best in North American road racing is always NoTrainingWheelsPod.com. Join us next time for more stories from our Criterium Nation.
The Slow Ride Podcast. Three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast. The titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpool had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast. The Zwift Racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast. The arrow helmet of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast. When's Lance gonna sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast. The experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast. Official Fan Experience Zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast, the gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.